Good day, and welcome to the ESPN The Last Dance conference call. Today's conference is being recorded. If you would like to ask a question during today's call, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. At this time, I would like to turn the conference over to Isabel Lopez. Please go ahead, ma'am. Hi, everyone. Thank you again so much for joining. As Lauren mentioned, just press star 1 if you have a question. And I'm going to kick it over to Connor Schell from ESPN, who's going to give a brief introduction, and then we'll get right started. Thank you, Isabel. Um, and, and thank you to everyone um, for joining the call today. Um, as Isabel said, I'm Connor Shell. I oversee content at ESPN, and I'm also privileged to have served as an executive producer on The Last Dance. We're thrilled that, thanks to the work of Jason Hare, who's on the call here, and his incredible production team, we're in a position where we're able to expedite the release of The Last Dance and release it at a time when we're all missing sports and missing the NBA dearly and craving great content. The first two episodes will premiere on ESPN this coming Sunday, April 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern, with two more episodes debuting each week thereafter. So so the 10 episodes will roll out over five weeks beginning this Sunday. And the series will also be available outside the U.S. on Netflix. The project, as you all know, celebrates one of the great dynasties with one of the greatest athletes ever as a central figure. In the fall of 1997, as Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls began their quest to win a sixth NBA title in eight years, the team agreed to let a film crew follow them all season long. The resulting footage is the source material that Jason Hare used to create a remarkable portrait revealed more than two decades later in The Last Dance of both the iconic player and the celebrated team and all of his teammates and coaches. We're lucky to have the director of the project, Jason Hare, and Steve Kerr on the phone with us today right now. I believe Dennis Rodman will be joining us as well. And um, unfortunately, Scotty Pippen had a late conflict and was unable to join. So thank you to Jason for the incredible work and to Steve and, and Dennis for their participation in the series and for being here today. And I also want to give a quick thank you to executive producers S.D. Portnoy, Curtis Polk, and Mike Tolan, who really helped drive this project forward and shape it creatively. And to Adam Silver, Greg Winnick, Andy Thompson, David Denenberg, and Dion Kokoros of the NBA, and the entire ESPN and Netflix teams. It was an impressive collaboration by everyone involved on what, was, on what is ESPN's most ambitious ever original content project. I'm so proud of the quality of the work. I'm so grateful to everyone involved. I'm hopeful that uh, the story will captivate the audience, and I'm thankful that all of you are interested in being here today and asking some questions and finding out more about it. So with that, I'll open it up for questions. So first we're going to go to Dan Wolf from the Los Angeles Times. Hey everybody, uh, thanks for doing this. Um, this question is for Dennis, Steve, and I guess Jason. Um, during this era of Bulls basketball, we saw and heard from Michael Jordan all the time in terms of commercials and 
press conferences and stuff like that. And then I guess post-career, we haven't heard as much. I'm, I'm curious, why do you think that is? And, and what, what do you think his sort of candor um, will mean to the, the general public? And what sort of level of candor did you see from him as a teammate? Who's the question for? I, it's Stephen Dennis. Dennis, are you on? I guess not. All right. Yeah. Um, I think uh, I, I can't ask um, the part about Michael, you know, kind of being in the uh, in the background these days, you know, after being in the limelight his whole career, but. Um, I do know that I, I'm excited for this movie because I think there's a whole generation of young basketball players and fans who have only heard about Michael and who didn't really experience um, his his dominance. And so uh, to, to really see it up close, to see the impact he had on the game, to see not only the physical, but the mental and emotional dominance he carried with him on the court every single game, uh, I think will be really interesting uh, and enlightening for an entire generation of young fans. Yeah, this is is Jason. Um, I can't speak to why Michael hasn't been so much in the limelight since his playing days, but... um, as you'll see in the series, um, as it evolves, that limelight and that pressure that Steve just alluded to weighed heavier and heavier on Michael, both on and off the court, as his career continued. As we, we all saw in, in uh, 93, after the death of his father, with an 18-month hiatus that he took, uh, it was a lot to bear to be responsible for uh, the on-court performance of the Bulls and to be one of the most prominent global icons uh, pop cultural icons of the era. So, and as far as the, his candor um, today, I can tell you that from the moment that uh, I first sat down with Michael to discuss the project, um, he was surprisingly forthcoming uh, and candid and eager to discuss a lot of the topics that I think people are going to be interested in. Uh, our first hour of conversations he went places that I wondered if he'd go in two years of shooting this doc. So he was all in from day one. He was an active participant. He was very generous with his time and his candor and his emotion. Um, he gave notes on the episodes. He's watched all the episodes. He gave actually really great notes, um, first-person accounts of how he felt and what he would add and subtract from the episodes. But he never once censored us. He never once policed us. He never once said that any topic was off limits. So he was a perfect partner for this project. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, just wanted to let you know that uh, Dennis has not yet dialed in. So if you can direct any questions to Steve, Jason, or Connor, that would be great. So next, I'm going to kick it over to Jeff Zilgit from USA Today. This question is for Steve Kerr. Steve, what was it like with the camera crews around all the time 
during that season, and what was sort of the team's collective reaction to, you know, granting that kind of access, and, you know, maybe looking back on it today, are you ultimately glad that there was so much being documented at the time so we could have this for historical context? Yeah, it, it, it was definitely strange at the time. It was just, um, you know, that was not an era where there was a ton of access uh, behind the scenes. You know, it was before all the you know hard knocks type uh, shows came came around, and you didn't have coaches' interviews and and live mics, you know, and, and uh, huddles or, or whatever taped you know t- taped conversations and broadcasts between coaches and players, that kind of stuff. And uh, for Phil Jackson, the locker room and the you know, the team's space was always very sacred. And so it was kind of a surprise uh, at the time when, when we were alerted to what was happening. But I think everybody embraced it pretty quickly because we were well aware we were playing in a very historic uh, era and playing for a historic team. And so I think we all understood that someday – this would all be captured, and uh, it would be great for us to to see it and, and remember it and show our kids and grandkids, all that kind of stuff. And uh, and then, you know, nothing happened for 20 years, whatever it was. Um, so it's it's uh, it's great that it's coming out now. I, I've talked to several of my teammates, and everybody's really excited about it. And, and uh I think in the end, it's it's um, it's just an incredible uh, an incredible thing for all of us, you know. Obviously, for the fans, but even for the players, for those of us who were there, uh, to to be able to look back and, and have some of this stuff on film, it's going to be it's going to be really fun to watch. Thank you, Steve. Mm-hmm. The next question we'll take is from Dan Weider at the Chicago Tribune. Uh, this question is for Steve. Uh, Steve, obviously, 20-plus years later, there's always a, a feel-good vibe in Chicago to the championship run and all that went with it. But heading into that 97-98 season before the sixth title run, what do you recall about that lingering tension between the, the front office and Phil, the front office and Scotty, and, and the, the dynamic that that sort of set at a time when, when the dynasty was, was still at its peak? Well, it definitely felt like the last season. Um, you know, it wasn't something that was concocted by Phil uh, when he when he called it the last dance. Uh, it was real, and um, you know, everybody's contracts were were up. Um, basically, had an entire team full of free agents, and and uh, it just felt like like that was going to be it. And so. Um, we wanted to make the most of it, and Phil, being the the coach the, uh, that that he was, having that sense of awareness of, of how to how to motivate a group, how to connect a group, um, he understood those dynamics well. So, so, so I thought that was one of the things that really drove us that year was uh, full awareness that that was it. That was going to be our last. The next question we'll take is from David Chinalato, 
who writes for La Gazzetta della Sport in Italy. Thank you. This is for uh, Coach Kerr. Uh, Coach, I-, I want you to talk about uh, the importance your Bulls had in the, in the pop culture because, you know, this team has became so much bigger than just basketball. And the obvious answer would be Michael Jordan, but I'm pretty sure he had a pretty a better one than just him. In terms of um, the, the impact that the team made on pop culture? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what, I'm sorry. What's the, what's the question, though? The, the question is: can, can you talk about the impact that the team has on pop culture? Because it became much bigger than basketball, and you have ESPN and Netflix producing a documentary on it. So it's, it was mm. definitely more than just one of the best teams around. What, what made it so special? Uh, well, I think Michael was uh, the driver of um of the of that impact uh in terms of the um the effect it made on pop culture because of the uh, just how immensely popular he was um and how many um commercials he did and you know the uh the global uh awareness that that people had of him and You know, the 92 Dream Team um, opened more of that up. And then, um, you know, when when he started really winning all those championships and and, uh, and people, basketball fans, really saw the, the true uh, genius of, of uh, that Bulls team under Phil Jackson, you know, those first three years, 91, 92, 93, and then when Michael came back, Uh, it was just that combination of Michael's popularity and and uh, an incredible era of of basketball. Thank you. The next question will be from Justin Barrasso at Sports Illustrated. Thank you. And you said uh, Scotty is not on the line, nor is Dennis, correct? Correct. Thank you. This is a question for Steve. Thanks, Coach of the Times. There's a story that Dennis missed the Bulls practice following Game 3 of the 98 Finals, a game the Bulls won by 42, to be part of uh, World Championship Wrestling's television program Nitro, which was held fittingly at the Palace of Auburn Hills uh, in Michigan. Considering you knew Dennis fairly well by that point, was it a shock when Dennis was missing at a team-related activity, especially a finals uh, practice during the NBA Finals, in order to miss for a pro wrestling show? No, I don't think anything was was really that surprising um, at that point. And um, I, th- I think the beauty of uh, Dennis joining the Bulls was uh, we had a really mature team. We had a lot of veteran players on that team. We had an incredible coach who, who understood uh, how to motivate teams and, and how to connect with individuals. And Phil had a, a beautiful connection with Dennis and uh, – And, and and so did uh, his teammates. I thought um, I thought there was a real connection that existed that um, that gave Dennis the, the freedom and the space that he needed. Uh, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a thing where you know we were all complaining about Dennis not you know 
making it to a practice or we just, we just sort of understood that, uh, you know, he was, uh, his own man and, and, um, he was, he did so much for our team that, um, we, uh, we allowed, you know, him to have that freedom. But I think the point that you're making that particular time to do it was, uh, during the finals, uh, I think more than anything, that was just an indication that uh, it was all coming to an end. That uh, there was uh, there was just a, a lifespan on that on that team that was uh, that wouldn't have allowed us to go on any further, even if players were still under contract. Um, I think we all felt like that was that was it, and um, and we. Uh, you know, we were fortunate to to win that last championship because there, there were plenty of difficult times along the way. But uh, it, it definitely felt like the end, and that was that was one of the reasons before it. Thank you. I'm guessing as a coach, to a Steph or a Clay or someone did that to you the past couple of years in the finals. Uh, obviously, you're, you're, I'm sure your admiration for Coach Jackson grew because. As a head coach in the NBA Finals, I'm sure that uh, that puts the coach in an awfully tough position. Yeah, it puts it puts the coach in a terribly difficult position. But um, again, I think that was part of Phil's genius was um, understanding how to maintain uh, authority and, and maintain uh, the uh, the team's momentum and and uh, in the in the face of uh, Adversity, um, whether it was something brought on by uh, something unforeseen or you know something like uh, you know a player missing the practice during the finals, Phil always found found the right tone, the right message. Thanks, Coach. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. The next question will be from Peter Splendorio at the New York Daily News. Hi, uh, this is also for Steve Kerr. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, you mentioned at the beginning that this has the possibility of introducing Michael Jordan's greatness to so many other viewers, but obviously this this Bulls team had a lot of great all-time type players. So, Steve, I'm wondering, what are you hoping that people take away after they watch this documentary about that team? Um, You know, I've I've never really given... Given it that thought, um, I, I uh, you know, what what my thinking has been is it's just going to be really great for people to see the inner workings of of that team, and um, because it was such a, a great team and and uh, a dominant team, and to see that kind of behind the scenes footage is, is really fascinating. Um, Steve, so, I can jump in know, a little I, bit. I, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I'm just trying to give you a little bit of a, a, a break for a yeah. second. Steve actually hasn't seen a lot of the footage that, that is in this doc. He saw the cameras, but he hasn't seen the actual footage that came out of it. Um, I can say, to, to answer the question of, of um, that was just asked, that I think from 35,000 feet, it's easy, and 20 years later, it's easy to see these teams as so dominant that it became simple for them to win. You know, they won six out of eight years. 
Um, every time Michael showed up for the first day of training camp in the 1990s for the Bulls, they won the title. So it, it got to, to look, even to me as a fan back then, it was like, well, it was a given. Death taxes and the Chicago Bulls are going to be in the finals. I think what fans will see over the course of 10 hours of this program is that it was never easy, it was never simple, and nothing, nothing that's, that, that is that significant uh, is ever easy. And that year after year, they had different cast of characters. They had uh, inner strife between the team and management. They had new faces. You know, when Michael left for baseball, he came back and had an entirely different cast of characters to play with besides Phil and Scotty. So my hope is that younger fans especially realize just how challenging it is to win one Steve certainly can attest to how difficult it is to win two or three in a row, but to win six out of eight, I hope that that's what's hammered home to everyone when they watch. Hey, thanks. And, and this is Connor. I'll, I'll just jump in. I mean, and, and, and say, um, you know, one of the remarkable things that I think this footage and, and but really the storytelling that Jason, um, has accomplished here. One of the remarkable things it does is it really, for those of us who lived it and grew up watching these teams and, and, and um, there's a level of nostalgia here, but, but he weaves together a narrative and, and makes connections and really brings to life everything he just said uh, in terms of the, the struggle to win the title year over year and, and, and everything that went into that. Um, and you really see that up close and personal so for those of us who lived it, it's an incredible experience where you really do feel like you're getting something new out of it. But then for, for fans, say, under 30 who, who you know, I, I'm not sure that they need an introduction to Michael Jordan. I'm not sure anyone needs an introduction but because I, I think they're, they're certainly aware of Michael and aware of how good he was but, and, and how dominant these teams were and what these teams meant. But I'm not sure they really get it. And, and when you experience these 10 hours and the way that Jason has constructed them, it really comes to life how good Michael was, how dominant these teams were, and what these teams meant to basketball fans and to popular culture broader. Uh, and it's a really remarkable achievement by, by Jason. The next question we'll take is from Neil Best at Newsday. This is for Jason. Could you tell us um, the the time frame over which those three interviews with Michael happened, and how you know what was the total amount of time you sat down with him, and what was the most surprising thing that you heard come out of his mouth during those sessions? We interviewed Michael three times, as you said. June 2018 was the first. May of 2019 was the second. December of 2019 was the third. Uh, the amount of time we were rolling camera was was about eight hours total of footage that we had with him. Um, you know, it's tough to, to pinpoint the most surprising thing he said. I think that overall, the most surprising aspect of it to me was his candor. Michael is probably more adept than any athlete of our lifetime at giving a rudimentary answer and answering anything put in front of him and wording it if he wants to share something, he will, and if not, he won't. Uh, he's probably been asked the same questions how many thousand times. One of the challenges was that every question I asked him, I knew that he had been asked in some way, shape, or form at some point. So to hear 
you know, I've, I've read over 10,000 pages of, of research on this. I've watched every documentary and every clip. We had over 10,000 hours of footage in our vault in our project. And, you know, I'm not going to say I sat there and watched 10,000 hours, but I thought I knew all there was to know. So when we find out things that are new, you know, he, he, he went pretty deep onto the allegations, um, the gambling allegations against him in the 90s. He went pretty deep about what happened to his father and how that affected him on and off the court. Um, and he went very deep into how he is perceived, how his intensity is perceived, how his competitiveness is perceived, and his ambivalence about that. You know, he has a certain pride in how competitive he is and how he's a win-at-all-cost kind of guy, but also he's a human being. And he was very respectful and kind to us, so it was interesting to see him grapple with the image that people have of him and the true person that Michael Jordan is. What was in that glass that was sitting next to him the whole time? That's a question for Michael. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. You got it. The next question is from Zach Bridenland at Complex. Hi. This is uh, for Steve. Uh, I was actually just wondering if you had one personal favorite Michael Jordan story from that era. If I If I would? If you had one like personal favorite Michael Jordan story just from that era of the Bulls. Oh man. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll tell you one. We used to have a um a, a contest. Um we'd shoot from the hash mark on the sideline at the end of every shooting round. About four of us. And um uh, maybe five of us. And at, at the end of shoot around, we'd, we'd start launching shots from there and whoever, whoever made the shot first one and Michael saw us doing it. And he just had to be involved. And, um, so he came down and started getting into the contest every day. And before you knew it, um, it was for money. <laughs> and, uh, and and he was usually winning, so that was uh, that was sort of a typical Michael story. Like he he just craved the competition. I think he loved the uh, interaction involved. He loved the loved the whole idea of competing in in, in any form, and that's kind of what made it made him who he was. I can also Martin, add thanks, that. Steve. The final competition that you guys ever had, Steve, from that hash mark after game one shoot around of the Utah finals in '98. That's what opened really? that 10th episode. Yeah. <laughs> Did he win? I'll bet he made it. I'll leave that as a cliffhanger, but I think that your <laughs> description was pretty accurate. Yeah, that sounds right. The next question will be from Michael Lee at The Athletic. Hey, uh, yeah, this uh, question is uh, for Steve. Um, at what point did you realize that playing with Michael was going to be different than probably any other teammate you ever had? And what was the difficulty, maybe the challenge of being with somebody who was that competitive in terms of just maybe his intensity and the way he maybe attacked his teammates? Well, I think I knew before I even uh, practiced with him and, and got to know him that, that it would be different just because uh, 
I had played against him and heard all the stories. Um, I mean, he was larger than life at that point, you know. And, um, he he dominated. I think I said it earlier in the call. I mean, it, it, he dominated the league in every way possible. Um, it wasn't just his play; it was just his his presence. And so he was he was emotionally dominant too, and you could feel that as an opponent. And so. When he uh, when he came on for the Bulls and I was already there, um, there was that there was that feeling right away, and there was a, a pressure that came with it um, when you were his teammate that I had never felt from anybody, and um, it was a great test. You know, it, it was uh, you had to you had to step up and and compete and perform every day. It was also an era where you had a lot more practices and more competition in practice, more scrimmaging uh, than we do these days. And um, so I, I always felt that was part of uh, Michael's genius was raising that, that bar, the level of competition and performance for our team every day just because of who he was. No, you know, nobody wanted to be left behind and he uh he constantly pushed everybody forward. The next question is from Jan Onona at Lakeep and Friends. Hi, uh, this is a, there's one question for Steve and one for Jason. Steve, I wanted to ask you please um Was that was that last run? Was that last dance the the most difficult uh, you had to face as a team, and how so? And Jason, I just wanted to ask you about the movie, how you constructed it, because it's not just the last dance; it's also about the flash forwards, the flashbacks about the whole career of Michael. I wanted to know more about the construction of the movie. Thank you. Uh, yeah, the third year was definitely uh, the, the most difficult uh, of the of the three, just from a fatigue standpoint. Um, you know, '96 when Michael came back, he was so motivated uh, and, and so energized that um, it just felt like nothing would stop us, and that carried forward to '97. Uh, but, but by '98, it was just uh, The uh, the wear and tear of the run started to show injuries. I think Scotty Pippen had uh, he, he missed quite a bit of the season with a back injury, and uh, you know Dennis um, started to drift from the team some, and uh, we could just feel it that it was uh, it was coming to an end, and. and uh, It was by far the most difficult. We had a really tough game seven against Indiana. It was the only game to run. And then uh, even the, the game that clinched the championship in Utah where Michael uh, made his famous shot, I think we were down 17 or 18 points in the second quarter. So we were, it felt like we were running on fumes by the end of that run. Uh, and to answer the question about um, the construction of the series, we knew 
uh, going in that the chronological spine uh, of the whole series was going to be that 97-98 season. Um, but with 10 hours to fill, it was an opportunity to actually go in-depth and tell the backstories of all of the main characters who made uh, not just that team what it was, but what that, that dynasty what it was. So, you know, as things happened during the 97-98 season, um, they would emerge as opportunities to tell the backstory. So, for instance, Scotty was out for the first 36 games of that season, 35 games of that season. He came back in game 36. Um, and he was having uh, quite a hard time seeing eye to eye with management in the first couple of months. So early in the in the series, episode two is when we do Scotty's backstory because it seemed like right. a good time to kind of. What's that? No, nothing. Go it ahead, seemed sorry. like a good time to tell Scotty's backstory. Then when Scotty came back, Dennis Rodman kind of uh, went out the deep end a little bit, took a little vacation for himself, and that seemed like a good time to tell Dennis's backstory. And then Phil had to bring Dennis back and, and write the ship and manage all the different personalities on the team. So by episode four, seemed like a good time to tell Phil's backstory. Steve just mentioned that game seven against Indiana and, and that Pacers series, and Steve played exceptionally well in that series. Um, so we waited until later on in, in the series to tell Steve's backstory, but that comes in episode nine. So as that 97-98 season progressed, we saw opportunities to, to go in-depth with all of the characters who made that team what it was. Did you leave anything out? Like, uh, did Michael want something out? Or no, Michael. Michael never once said anything was off limits, uh, and he never once asked us to omit anything. He asked us to add certain things, um, certain plays or certain games that he felt were important. Uh, or certain moments in the evolution of that dynasty that he felt were important. Um, but he never he never instructed us to take anything out. And from day one, he told me that there wasn't a question I would ask that he would not answer truthfully. So he was he was a pleasure. Thank you. And we unfortunately just have time for one last question. So we'll be taking a question from Aiza Garcia at NBC. Hi, thank you guys so much for being on the call. Hope everyone is doing well during this crazy time. Um, with the with the dearth of live sports programming, I'm curious, what did it take to accelerate the uh, launch of the series? So, as Connor, I'll jump in and then I'll throw it to Jason. I mean, I, you know, we were on track for the series to premiere June the second, and we had built a production schedule um, accordingly, um, and, and You know, and, and, the, and the actual rollout of the series was timed to the NBA Finals, right? So this was going to air on off nights of the NBA Finals. Um, obviously, as uh, the league suspended competition and, and you know, circumstances changed, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure that there was any reason why we felt like, okay, we need to stick with the original air dates on this. Um, and, and obviously with the dearth of live programming and, and really wanting to connect with sports fans um, and also an understanding of, of, of how good this series is and the material is, um, we, you know, got to work at try, to try to figure out how to move this up and, and, and accelerate the production timeline and the post-production timeline on some of these episodes. Um, you know, in, in, in mid-March, Episodes nine and ten 
were not just not done. Episode 10 was, was not yet uh, um, even assembled. I think Jason had in his head what scenes were going to go where and, and how it could be constructed. But, um, you know, all credit to Jason and, and, and uh, his team for figuring out technologically how to do this at home and um, get us to a place where, where we can start episodes one and two this week and, and episodes nine and ten have finalized by the time they air in mid-May. I mean, Jason, you want to pick up uh, the ins and outs of, of, of that? Yeah, uh, like you said, in, in early March when all of this started to um, to really accelerate in terms of COVID and, and uh, shelter-in-place and stay-at-home orders, uh, we were just heading around the corner to, to finish uh, the rough cut for Episode 9, and then we were going to spend you know, roughly the next month beginning Episode 10 and assembling that. Um, and then when you finish your, your rough cut, you get notes, and there's a picture lock, and then there's a few weeks of fine-tuning, finishing that happen in, in multi-million-dollar rooms that are at this really nice facility where we're editing this thing, this uh, series. So all of that now has to be done from home, and luckily all of the, the specialists and the artists who do this, the, the, the colorists and the sound designers, they all have home studios, um, and our editors all had setups that were professional enough at their homes where they could edit individual segments. And just through technology where, you know, through Zoom meetings and, and text conversations and, and um, FaceTime conversations and, and email chains, we're kind of doing this piece by piece, sometimes out of sequence, but, um, you know, they'll mail me their segments and I'll put them together and I'll watch it here at home. Uh, I'm in my apartment right now. I'll watch it on my laptop or my desktop give my notes and, and send it back and we're assembling it that way. So it's a credit to the entire team that I don't think one ounce of quality is going to be lost in the final product here. Um, so the, 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 the biggest challenge was the lack of collaboration because the best moments and the joy of making this is having the whole team together, sitting in a room together, discussing ideas, trying things out with each other and, and having those late nights where all the best ideas are born we're all working on our own now, but um, I'm proud to say that I think that we're not going to lose any quality on the final product. Thanks so much. Thank you. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today, but thank you to everyone for joining and our speakers for their time. Thanks a lot, everybody. Stay safe. Thank, thank you, everyone. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Jason. Thanks right. a lot. And that does conclude today's conference. We thank you for your participation. You may now disconnect.